0: is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: Good afternoon. Jane McNaughton here with you today. Coming up, the Bureau of Meteorology has launched an agriculture support unit dedicated to improving long-term forecasts and agribusiness decision-making after farmers have criticized forecasts of dry weather which they say led them to sell livestock at rock-bottom prices. Farmers in northern Victoria say they haven't been properly consulted over the controversial VNI West transmission line project that is set to cut through their farm. And Australia is introducing a new fuel emission standard for light commercial vehicles, like farm utes, to bring us in line with Europe. Shoot me through a text on 0467 842 722. Just like Clyde in Bright has done with a rainfall message in this morning already. 15 millimetres in the gauge at Bright this morning and it's still raining. If you're getting some rain in your patch, I'd love to hear from you as well. 0467 But first, while politically today the focus is on the Albanese government trying to pull off the biggest policy shift of its first term, claiming changed economic circumstances are forcing it to break an election promise not to change the coalition-era Stage 3 tax cuts – there are also hints that the government is working with the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission to, ad- to address the disparity between farm gate prices that supermarkets are paying for fresh food and what consumers are forking out at the checkout. This morning, Federal tre- Treasurer Jim Chalmers spoke with Sabra Lane on AM.
2: Now, you've been in talks with the competition watchdog chief, chief Gina cascot Has she got all the powers that she needs to crack down on the supermarket giants? What else would she like to do?
3: Uh, I don't think she does and I've been in discussions uh, with her, really terrific discussions with uh, the ACCC chair who's doing a a wonderful job. We've had some very constructive conversations about what additional powers uh, she may need uh, to ensure that we get a fair go for families and farmers when it comes to our supermarkets. Uh, And we hope to be able to say more about that really quite soon.
1: We'll keep across this on the Country Hour. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is set to speak at the National Press Club in about half an hour's time and announce a suite of cost of living relief measures along with these tax cuts. I wonder, though, do you think the supermarkets have too much power in the supply chain? 0467 842 722 is the text line. Farmer Matthew Young grows veggies at East Sassafras in northern Tasmania, none of which head to a major supermarket. In fact, he once turned down a contract to supply celeriac into Woolworths that possibly would have helped upscale the farm. He says he has no interest in supplying the major supermarkets. It's
4: a bit interesting. They're saying they can't afford to pay the producers or pay more for the product but they're turning around and making a billion dollars worth of profit. Like I understand businesses have got to make the profit but a billion dollars is a lot of money in anybody's books. So if I can't wind that back a little bit and pass a little bit back to the growers who are actually producing the vegetables and other products that they're selling and make it even for everybody then yeah I don't know how that would work but Yeah, a billion dollars is a lot of money in anyone's books. So, it's yeah, very interesting that they can produce that but can't pass it on. I haven't gone chasing a woolly contract and I did get offered it once when we were growing rack on a larger scale and sending it to the mainland, but I worked out it was going to cost me somewhere between $140,000 to $180,000 just to meet their requirements of the packing shed and quality assurance and everything else to start supplying before I'd even supplied a single bulb and... I don't have a lot of face in some of the big supermarkets and their abilities that they'll turn around and go, well, sorry, we can get it cheaper somewhere else and just get it from them. So you're stuck with all this money outlaid and no return for it.
2: Wow. So a $180,000 outlay before you even start selling?
4: Yep. Yep. And that was just basically building a packing shed to meet their requirements Um, because what we were doing at the time didn't suit, uh, so there would have been washing lines, all sorts of different things we would have had to do to meet the economies of scale that we would need to supply what they wanted, because it was supplying the fair whack of southern Australia, so it wasn't just Tassie, it was Victoria, South Australia and parts of New South, so, yeah, it would have been a big step and we just looked at it and went, well, honestly, we're happy doing what we're doing and we don't need the headaches or the cost outlay that go with it. Yeah, we probably are missing out on a bit of money, but in the scheme of things, I think life's easier continuing to do what we do and diversifying and growing lots of different things and spreading our risk out that way.
1: That was Northern Tasmania veggie grower Matthew Young speaking there with Meg Powell. Now, is there anything farmers like talking about more than the weather? It appears not. Clyde's already texted in and we've also got Rob in Chilton, 0.5. A lot of noise, but no rain in the gauge today. Well, there's now a new unit at the Bureau of Meteorology dedicated to providing weather and advice to producers and growers. The Bureau has come in for criticism over... The Bureau has come in for criticism of late over its forecast and the new Agriculture Decision Support Team will aim to improve long-term forecasts for agribusiness decision-making. Meteorologist Jonathan Howell told Fiona Broome the team will gather information from farmers and international weather bureaus to provide climate and weather insights.
0: Yes, yeah, so I'm part of a new Agriculture Decision Support Team here at the Bureau. Uh, it's a small team, it's just two, two meteorologists, but we're a brand new team at the Bureau and dedicated to... Um, working with the agriculture industry, um, we're not agronomists, but we do work very closely with agronomists and other advisors, and we actually do have an agronomist within our team, um, in an agriculture team as well. So we work very closely with industry to um, assist farmers in making decisions throughout the throughout the year. So whether that's um, sowing and planting, or whether it's harvesting as well. We help to um, provide a bit of insight and knowledge into the climate outlook for for growers as well, and that does include also things like um, humidity, uh, particularly um, for industries like the grain industry as well. So we're a brand new team. Um, we would love to we love to get out and uh, chat to chat to growers out there through Victorian and across across the, the country. Um, but yeah, we're a dedicated team, um, and very much looking forward to seeing what we can do as we work together with the agriculture industry.
5: So you are a new team. You may, though, have already encountered a bit of uh, frustration with, from some producers who say that um, El Nino predictions from, from last year have caused them some problems within their business. How do you sort of go about addressing that and, and working with producers mm. and growers?
0: Exactly, That's exactly right. So we definitely understand that, Uh, many growers would have been expecting a hot and dry summer. In some places, particularly in Western Western Australia and central parts of the country, that has occurred. But as you move towards the eastern states, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria have, have of course, seen a lot of rainfall and flooding over the last few months. And that, of course, is part of the challenge of some of this long-term forecasting. So our team looks at Firstly, a range of different international models. So, when we produce these our briefings and outlooks, we look at we look beyond what the forecast is saying and try to give a bit more insight into what some of the other global international climate models are saying, and give a bit of a, another perspective of what that might mean. So, um, particularly as we've seen these these large thunderstorm outbreaks across eastern parts of the country. We look beyond things like El Nino and to other climate drivers, such as the southern annular mode, to kind of tie everything together uh, in terms of impacts for agricultural communities. So really working together to provide a bit more insight.
5: Farmers say better communication between the Bureau, agricultural industries and emergency and government bodies could help boost farmers' trust in Australia's weather predictions. Eastern Victoria livestock producer Chris Nixon says farmers in the region have turned to international forecasting bodies to plan their daily operations.
6: Well, the issue we have is that the farmers I talk with have basically lost confidence in the ability of the Bureau to be reasonably accurate in what they're forecasting. As a result, we have farmers now. I, I personally use a weather map from Finland. Others use Japanese. Others use Norwegian. Others use the USA. To give you an example, the 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 finished one I've been watching gives rain increments in four-hour blocks for the day. It seems to be reasonably accurate on how much rain we get. It's not quite so accurate on the time of day it's, it is. But it's interesting that, you know, all we get is a range, a percentage and a range from the Met So it's very hard to, to have confidence about what the hell's going on.
5: In terms of long-range forecasts, have you had a chance to test uh, some of those other international models
6: yet? The Finnish one does give long-range forecasts, but I haven't had a chance to... I've only been watching it for the last month or so, so I haven't had a chance to compare what its long-range forecasts are are compared to the Mets. As time goes on, I'll I'll learn to see what it's like. and compare the two as we go forward.
5: With the Bureau's new Agriculture Support Unit, what do you think they need to take into consideration when they're thinking about their operations? We
6: have farmers who are trying to do hay and silage and, and... relying on the met bureau's forecasts on on the windows of opportunity to do that so accuracy is, is the greatest support they can do i mean we need accurate information if they, if they don't we don't need a translator we just need the information we can make our own decisions on whether what they're giving us is a an opportunity or not automated flood watches. And telling us that you're in for a minor, major flood heights, which are going to be changed. You know, we're all very upset by that. You know, farmers have been here for 100 years. We know what our flood levels are. Just give us the raw data. We can make our own decisions from what needs to happen from there.
1: Cattle producer Chris Nixon speaking there with Fiona Broom. And earlier you heard from Jonathan Howe, a meteorologist in the Bureau's new agriculture decision support team. Do you think that will make a difference in how farming, uh, how communication is uh, given to farmers about what decisions they need to make on farms? Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two is the text line. And Jeff has messaged in saying that farmers talk about the weather so they don't bore you witless about all the other problems of farming. I'm sure you wouldn't bore me too much, Jeff, but thank you for your text message. And uh, we're also spe- speaking about the supermarket supply chain. There has been hints from the federal government that they're working with the ACCC. Uh, we-, we should find out something uh, potentially today about that. The Prime Minister is addressing the cost of living pressures shortly at the uh, press club. And if we do find anything out from that about the supermarkets, we will let you know Uh, Once we have that information to hand, but we have got some messages in on that. Uh, One here from Kimbo saying that the supermarket executives live in a bubble and it all starts with the 4% settlement discount they take from a supplier's invoice. From there, they are God. That's from Kimbo. Uh, We have another one in here from John Harrow saying as a red meat producer, the supermarkets are possibly our best outlet. And another one in here saying, farmers have historically been taken advantage of for thousands of years in this day of age where the world literally depends on farmers for their survival. I can't believe that farmers are still not valued or paid accordingly for their produce. Disgraceful of supermarket giants to be capitalising on this historically uh, behaviour just because they can. And we've got one that's just come in from B in Hayfield saying, we used to have a great weather forecast in Gippsland by the Sale RAF base. Yes, I do remember that growing up in Sale. I did hear it on the radio. And the bomb stopped that. Worst decision they've ever made, according to B from Hayfield. You can send us a text as well 0467 842 722.
0: The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: And Jay McNaughton here with you this afternoon. It's currently 17 minutes past 12. Farmers in northern Victoria say that they haven't been consulted over the controversial VNI West transmission line project that is set to cut through their farm. Mick and Kath Shepherd farm at Tregal, where they run beef and operate a popular farm stay and sculpture-arse tourist attraction. They say the company behind the project, TCV, didn't inform them that they would be affected and they only learned second-hand that their farm was in its path.
7: So the first thing we personally knew about it coming through our farm was um, in October last year, uh, two men came to the door um, with a folder pictured with transmission lines. Um, I looked at them and said, do you want to put these on our farm? That was just the gut instinct I had. And uh, to be told, no, 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 just putting the feelers out. Then I sort of said, I feel like I need to go and put the movie The Castle on because I thought we're in a bit of trouble. It looked a bit too serious. And again, a bit of a giggle. um, No, we're just putting the feelers out. And so really, we've only known about it for about three months.
8: And how did you actually learn that your farm fell within that refined two-kilometre corridor?
7: Um, Actually, we through our people that we've had come to the farm stay and tourist attraction, uh, we were here one night and were getting phone calls, texts and photos sent to us um, of the public corridor as it had been released publicly, Um, again publicly, uh, I'm finding that a little bit hard to understand because it's public if you're looking into those subjects. If you're not aware of it, ignorance is bliss and you have no idea, it makes it a bit hard when they say public. Um, so basically we were getting sent photos um, from neighbours as well who had sort of del- you know, delved into it a bit more and the word Shepo's Way was sitting right in the middle of the corridor that is planned to go through Trigau.
8: So you were getting that information second hand rather than We have officially. never
7: actually got any information from TV, TCV themselves on first hand basis.
8: And how do you feel about that when TCV has very publicly said it's committed to to open consultation with the the affected landowners?
7: Uh, I'm someone who doesn't like lies and I love honesty and we are extremely disappointed. And that's probably all I'm allowed to say on radio.
8: We've got you there as well, Mick. Yeah. What's yeah. What's it going to mean to have this transmission line go across your farm?
9: A bit gut-wrenching, actually. Um, so the big thing is it's a, yeah, it's a two-kilometer um, corridor, which goes from one end of the farm to the other end of the farm. And the issue is it comes through, it's 100% going to devalue my farm. And... No one can sort of argue with that one, and that's a bit heart-wrenching when we've worked so hard in, on this farm to get it where it is, Um and these power lines are coming through.
8: And your farm, obviously, a working cattle farm, but also, as, as you mentioned, you, you've got the farm stay side of the business. Are so you worried that well, people won't want to come once the line goes through?
9: I, I wish it would be a very ugly-looking site with these um power lines coming through, Uh, let alone all these turbines all around me. There'll be power lines going through, turbines all around the area, solar farms all around the, around the place. A new substation has just been knowledge next door. Um, it's going to be a very... lot of steel structures everywhere. And, yeah, it's, it's pretty gut-wrenching.
8: What about the compensation uh, that is being offered by TCV? Do you think that's fair at all?
9: Well, it's not about the money, but the... Um, the thing is, um, just for example, the uh, wind turbines all around the area could be 200 turbines in the area from uh, Trigel to the corner. They're compensating them uh, reasonably well. Um, for example, $50,000 a turbine where the transmission lines are coming through, they're conversating you $8,000 per kilometer. And maybe there might be some uh, arrangements on, on the land that's the value of your land. But it's not about the money. It's about the whole way you've done it all and the infrastructure that's going to go through my farm, that's going to devalue my farm. I just I totally guess it. it's so wrong.
8: So for both of you, where to from here? What What are you going to do?
7: I guess all we're really asking is for some communication of what others want to do with our property. I mean, that in itself... Does that not say at all? If someone can walk onto someone's property, into someone's house and tell the owners who have paid for this place what they're going to do with your land, that to me isn't living in Australia.
1: Kath and Mick Shepherd there from Trugal, speaking to Angus Verley and the transmission company Victoria or TCV was contacted for comments. Now, while some landholders who could see new renewable energy transmission lines installed on their properties have been vocally opposed to playing host to the mega cables, farmers between the Latrobe Valley and Melbourne have worked under the lines since transmission from the region's coal-fired power infrastructure was established. So what is it really like living under the lines? Our reporter Fiona Broome went exploring. Once you're
5: about 70 kilometres east of Melbourne heading along the Prince's Highway you'll start to notice transmission lines on your left. Well, you might notice them if you're not from the area. For folks who've grown up or lived around here for years, they're just part of the landscape. They run all the way to the coal-fired power stations in the Latrobe Valley, and when you get to around Trafalgar, two separate lines merge, creating a sea of transmission towers. Farmers in western and southeastern Victoria have raised concerns at the prospect of becoming host to transmission lines when new renewable energy zones are built. Andrew Balfour's family has farmed at Willow Grove just near Trafalgar for generations. His grandfather, James Balfour, was actually the state's energy minister for about 15 years between the 60s and the 80s. Andrew reckons the lines appeared on the family dairy farm about 50 odd years ago.
10: They were put in when my father was younger and they cleared the land when they got put in.
5: How did your family feel when the lines went in?
10: Uh, I think in those days they were happy for development and their land to be cleared was a bonus. That's about all I can recall.
5: So you run a dairy operation here. How does it go working underneath the transmission lines?
10: That's not too bad. Um, Sometimes you've got to work around fencing and... Um, Tractors mowing underneath them and that sort of stuff. They're not too hard to work around. And
5: so have you got pasture under your lines here?
10: Yeah, all dairy, all uh, perennial pastures, yeah. So harvest time, you've got to be careful on tractors and mowers and that sort of stuff. And when you're fencing, sometimes you get a bit of a current along the fence lines that run parallel with the transmission lines. So you've got to make sure they're earthed out before you start tying the wires up.
5: But you can run livestock under the lines?
10: Yeah, no pro- problems at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's all right.
5: Um, and what about if you wanted to build any dwellings? Do you have any issues around that?
10: Yeah, you probably wouldn't want to have a house here. and I'd spoil your view, I would reckon. It'd be a bit like that show The Castle, is it, where the, they live a house right under the airstrip or the aeroplanes in Melbourne.
5: Do you have a succession plan for your farm here? Are you planning to sort of pass that down to your kids?
10: Yeah, we have. I've got three boys that are all interested in farming, yeah. And they're all, a couple of them are working here at the moment. So we will need more dwellings for them to be developed for them to move into as as things change. My biggest concern is probably the land value. If they want to put more in, what happens to the value of your land, you know, resale value? And it probably can't be used for much other than farming underneath. So,
5: yeah. And so this location that we're standing at the moment, is this somewhere that you could uh, technically build a property, Uh, build a better house?
10: Yeah, on this. 200 acre title here yeah it'd be a great spot to put a house but you'd be looking straight into a transmission tower (laughs) there's talk of solar panels buying our land to put solar panels well that doesn't sit really well with me i don't think when we can use the beautiful country that can produce a lot of product and we're the best country in australia and we're going to put solar panels on it doesn't make sense to me.
5: Farmers in the west of the state who uh, you know have been protesting against um, the potential lines going through their property would you have any sort of message for them about actually living with the lines on their on their property?
10: Yeah. It's something I've learned to grow with and live with but I wouldn't go any way to have them forced upon me. The last thing you'd want I reckon
1: willow grove dairy farmer andrew Balfour speaking there with fiona broom and all earlier we were speaking about the vni west project in the west of the state Uh, we did get one text in saying if it's not about money why do the shepherds keep harping on about the devaluation of their farm Uh, thank you for that text message and we've also got another one in here saying does everyone realize that coles and woolworths are large exporters of beef as well they want their cake and eat it too. And this person also says the Bureau of Meteorology should be private without government interference as every conversation ends in climate change.
0: On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour.
1: Durham seed is in short supply and the southern and the Southern Australia Durham Growers Association is calling on growers who may have extra durham seeds to volunteer any ac- and sell any access. Projects and research coordinator with the association, John Green, told Elsie Adamo the wet weather is to blame for the shortage.
11: Well, unfortunately, a lot of the durham growers in the southeast and the West Wimmera of Victoria this year have had uh, many inches of rain on their crops since they started harvest. And, a, and some have had sprouted grain in their wheat and their durum, which makes that seed unviable for planting this year. So they've put a call out, call out to the Durham Grow Association to see if we can find farmers who may have surplus durum seed on farm that they would be willing to sell. So what we're asking growers to do is to send the information of how much tonnage they've got on farm that they're willing to sell, quantity, quality and variety, and we'll connect it up with growers who need seed, and then after that we'll let the buyers and the sellers negotiate between the two of them for the price and delivery and freight, et cetera, et cetera.
12: And has this happened before, a seed shortage in these regions?
11: Uh, Not to the degree this year because, to give you an example, there's some farmers in the southeast have had nine inches of rain on their crops since they started harvest, and some have had five and six inches. And, of course, it's not so much the first rain that hits your crop when it's ripe, it's the second and third rain that does the damage so there's many farmers unfortunately haven't got viable seed to plant this year and we're trying to help them out and the certified seed growers only have limited supplies of certified seed to sell and some of them are nearly sold out already so it's first in first serve
13: yeah are you confident that there will be
12: enough people offering up excess seed to, to fill the shortfall, or will there still be some going without this season
11: well, it's too early to tell that because we've only just started advertising for the names of buyers and sellers to contact our secretary, Deb Barm. And once uh, we have a list of buyers and sellers, then we'll know whether we're able to satisfy their requirements or not. But at this stage, it's too early to tell.
12: And what will the impacts be if not enough seed is found?
11: Well, obviously, they won't be able to grow that particular uh, crop or that particular variety if they can't get their hands on viable seed.
12: And could that cause any shortages in the future then?
11: It, it may cut down the amount of durum growing in the southeast if they can't get viable seed, for sure. Uh, but they will be needing viable uh, wheat seed as well because if they've got by, uh, by unviable durum seed, they've probably got unviable wheat as well so they'll be chasing red wheat varieties as well that's viable. Mm -hmm. But we're just trying to help people out who grow Durham at this stage. We're a non-profit organisation full of volunteers, and we just want to help farmers out that are in this predicament at the moment. So if they contact our secretary with the seed tonnage and variety and quality that they require, and also if they're a grower that has surplus seed in their silo on-farm, we would prefer them to get that quality tested so that they know that it's viable seed before they offer it up for sale. And once we get the list of the buyers and sellers, we'll connect them together.
1: That was Southern Australia Durham Growers Association Projects and Research Coordinator, John Green, speaking there with Elsie Adamo. It has just clicked over to 29 minutes to the news at one o'clock. Better get some rural news. Good afternoon, Emma Field.
2: G'day, Jane. Let's start rural news with a weather update. Northern Queensland is preparing for tropical cyclone Kiralee to hit the state tonight. The Bureau of Meteorology is warning the system will quickly intensify before likely crossing the Townsville coast between Cardell and Bowen as a Category Two storm. Carl Walker farms near Bowen, and despite the region being extremely dry this season, farmers in the region have been preparing their paddocks for the days following the cyclone.
10: Everyone's been busy spraying some paddocks with um, with Roundup, basically knocked the, knocked the grass so that when the rain's over, they get straight in and and get back on schedule, because the biggest problem with when you get these weather events, you can't go on the ground for someone's four weeks and it puts you behind schedule. Um, So people have been preparing for that, obviously locking things down, just the normal stuff we do every time there's a cyclone. Uh, Hopefully this time we'll get lucky and it won't be too severe for us in Bowen.
2: And you've heard this week about some huge rains across the Northern Territory and at Birundudu Station in the NT, it's now resembling an inland sea. The remote property is completely cut off with the homestead now surrounded by floodwaters as far as the eye can see. Station manager Jordan Perry says they've had about 350 millimetres and his young family could be waiting weeks for the waters to recede.
14: We've obviously seen the Sturt Creek rise dramatically um, in, in quite a short period of time. Yeah, I mean it's been full on moving, moving gear to higher ground, and dogs, and horses, and mares and foals, and yeah, lifting generators up so they don't go under, and putting generators on trailers to to sort of power fridges and freezers and run a fan here and there. So yeah, it's been it's been quite busy. Yeah, we sort of we went for a fly yesterday. I think we worked out we've got uh 15 k's of water laying back to the east. And then we've got yeah 10 k's of water laying back to the west of the homestead. Um, we've we've got about 20 25 k's of water laying to the north of the homestead. And um, yeah, it's sort of it's about 50 k's of sort of Sturt Creek that runs back to the to the southwest is all full all the way through in the Gordon Downs. So.
2: And this enormous amount of water has closed the Victoria Highway, which links the Great Northern Highway in Western Australia with the Sturt Highway in the Northern Territory. Western Roads Federation CEO Cam Dum- Dumasie says that means any freight between WA and the Northern Territory now has to take the long way around, adding more than 1,000 kilometres to the journey.
15: So we're currently going through Port Augusta, so Perth to Port Augusta, then up to, to Darwin, so that uh, that trip's 5,100 kilometres, whereas the normal trip is about 3,800 kilometres. So it's, you know, it's, um, it's a fair chunk of distance further. If the outback way was sealed, what would the numbers be then? Particularly from Laverton through Dallas, we're looking at it's only 100 kilometres longer. So it's 3,800, it becomes 3,900. So we're saving around 1,200 kilometres on the alternative route.
2: And still in the north, the slow-moving tropical low that's now moved into WA's Pilbara region has delivered some excellent falls for several cattle stations in WA's Kimberley district. Hayden Sale is a general manager of three cattle stations across the Kimberley, and the rain has arrived just in time.
4: Fast in the central Kimberley and eastern Kimberley, it's been brilliant. We've had um, anywhere from 100 mil to up to 200 mil over the last four or five days, and pretty steady... Nice rain as well, not just mad big flash floods or anything. It's just been um, been a brilliant break to what was becoming very worrying, very, sort of late year for us, uh, not much through December and the first half of January. So we were starting to get a bit worried. So it's been, yeah, been a good event.
2: And to the latest on fire ants. And the good news is there's been no new nests found near the initial detection in the pod village at Wardell, south of Ballina on the New South Wales far north coast. The National Fire Ant Eradication Program Manager, Graham Dudgeon, is confident the infestation can be contained and eradicated locally.
11: We certainly don't like to see any outbreaks of ants anywhere. So the eradication aim is still eradication from Australia. What we can do with these smaller outbreaks, like the one we have here in Wardell, is do a local eradication. So we'll apply the same methodology we do to the bigger incursion in South East Queensland, but we can do it much more concentrated and um, we can be fairly sure that we can eradicate them from here.
2: And that wraps up Rural News.
1: Thank you very much, Emma Field, in Sale there with our Rural News. I'm broadcasting from Ballarat today where it's a little bit cool. It's a fair bit cooler than it was yesterday and a little bit overcast. But to get the forecast for the rest of the state, we're joined now by Joanna Hughes from the Bureau of Meteorology, senior forecaster there. Good afternoon
12: good afternoon it's uh yeah looking uh pretty cloudy out there for most of victoria at the moment and uh yeah a little bit a uh, little bit cool depending on on where you are as well um, so at the moment we've got still got some continuing shower and thunderstorm activity particularly in northern parts of the state um, and that's expected to continue sort of um throughout the day today and then eventually ease off um, later this evening um, in terms of the rainfall that we've seen from those showers and storms in the last little while. Um, in the 24 hours to 9am this morning, some of the, uh, the peak spots were all up in the, the northeast, sort of around the region near Harrietville. So um, pick of the crop was uh, Eldorado with 33mm uh, in the gauge. We also had 16mm at Black Range Trout Farm, 15mm uh, for Upper Buckland um, and sort of similar totals in the 10-15mm to 15 millimeter range up around that part of the world. Um, and then sort of more broadly across... Um, across the sort of areas north of the north of the slopes, there we had sort of uh, five to ten millimetres uh, for most places in the eastern half of Victoria, and that sort of grading off um, through the central ranges, sort of more like a few millimetres, and um, out further west through the through the Wimmera. In terms of the the gauges that the the bomb looks after, um, yeah, just a, you know a couple of sprinkles here and there, mostly sort of less than a less than a millimetre or so to 9am um, this morning. Uh, and we have seen a little bit more so far today, um, sort of keeping on ticking up those totals over in the northeast. So, um, so far since 9am this morning, the, the highest we've seen is uh, 9 millimeters in the gauge at Falls Creek um, and other similar uh, totals in, in nearby locations in that same kind of area. Um, and so after those showers and storms clear off today, um, we are heading into a pretty dry period for much of the state. So... That that trough that the shower and storm activity is associated with is going to linger over eastern Victoria tomorrow. We're not expecting thunderstorm activity with that, but uh, some continued showers uh, for far eastern Victoria, sort of in um, East Gippsland and up around the the northeast ranges as well. Um, And in the wake of that, we've got a a ridge pushing in with some southwesterly flow, which will be a bit cooler. So bringing down the humidity tomorrow and bringing down the, the maximum temperatures a little bit as well. Um, so we'll also see some more isolated, patchy sort of shower activity about the southwest, and uh, the usual kind of culprits in that southwesterly kind of flow around um, Bass Coast and the Yarra Ranges, that kind of area. Um, and then as we head into Saturday, that ridge becomes more, um, more sort of settled over the state, and uh, looking at fairly dry and mild conditions, a bit warmer up in northern parts of the state. Um, the winds are picking up around coastal areas on that Friday-Saturday period as well, um, sort of from the central waters out towards the east. Uh, on that Saturday afternoon, we do have another just uh, fairly, I'm going to call it a gentle trough, um, just passing around crossing. southern parts of the yes. state. A gentle trough, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's just bringing, up, yeah, it's just some light isolated showers, again, sort of just in the south. So might see something in the southwest and might see something around um, the sort of Bass Coast and, and Yarra Ranges again. But otherwise, looking dry across the state, it'll probably remaining pretty clear skies up in the north um, and those warm temperatures continuing and a little bit more cloud around um, in southern parts of the state on Saturday. As we head into Sunday, um, that ridge is really um, you know, making itself known and uh, a little bit of cloud lingering around in the morning probably, but otherwise um, clearing up to quite a, a sunny day and, and dry right across the state is what we're expecting on Sunday. Um, with dry conditions continuing into Monday, with the winds starting to turn a bit more northerly, so those temperatures picking up as well through that Monday period. Um, and then Tuesday, uh, yeah, it's just sort of, uh, just the, the story continues, I guess, a, a slight chance of, um, of a little bit of uh, drizzly shower activity, just light stuff, mainly in the south um, as another ridge pushes in and those, um, those temperatures come back down again. Um, and settled conditions expected on Wednesday as well. So to kind of bring that all, all together, that um, shower and thunderstorm activity uh, continuing today, uh, then contracting eastwards tomorrow, um, and then things starting to ease off through the weekend, um, maintaining fairly cool conditions um, as that sort of southwesterly pushes through, warming up again Monday, and then cooling down again Tuesday, Wednesday.
1: Brilliant, Joanna. And we do have a text in on 0467 from Olive saying... Uh hi Jane. I was just wondering if it's going to rain at Yarrawonga tomorrow as I want to go fishing with my pop. So how's it looking <laughs> in Yarrawonga tomorrow? Uh
12: let's have a let's have a look. I think for uh, for Yarrawonga um yeah, we'll sort of have to have a little bit of a think about it. Um yeah, so we're sort of looking at um in that part of the world. There's still a chance of a shower in the morning I'd say. Um, but then, uh, by the afternoon, I reckon it should be, should be clear, pretty, clear around Yarrawonga. So not quite as clear cut. If it had been a bit further west, I could probably give a more confident, um, no, no rainfall expected, but no, I think, uh, probably some, some morning showers around for that fishing
1: trip. So maybe have a bit of a sleep in.
12: <laughs> yeah, maybe have a bit of a sleep in and see if the fish want to come and bite in
1: the afternoon. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Thank you so much, Joanne. really appreciate your time. No worries, Jane. Have a good day. Cheers. And that's Joanna Hughes there from the Bureau of Meteorology. uh, And we will be getting a weather forecast tomorrow, although there is a public holiday in place. The Country Hour continues. So uh, if anything changes, we'll keep you up to date tomorrow as well.
0: You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: Jane McNaughton here with you today. It is 18 minutes to the news at one o'clock. Australia is introducing new fuel emission standards for light commercial vehicles, like farm utes, to bring us into line with Europe. The changes will roll out late next year, but the National Farmers Federation says more work is needed to make sure that agriculture and rural communities aren't disadvantaged. Emily Doak has more. From
16: December 2025, new light vehicle models, including SUVs and utes, that are introduced to Australia will have to meet the Euro 60 emissions standards while all new cars will have to comply by 2028. The government says this will bring Australia in line with 80 percent of the global car market. NFF president David Johinki is worried it might bring additional costs for agriculture.
17: We see this as a very noble aspiration by government to try to reduce pollution from vehicles and we understand that as time goes on, emission standards change, things change in general with how vehicles are manufactured. However, we've also obviously want to understand how this will be complied to uh, agriculture, especially around when we're requiring vehicles of a standard that um, most European cars don't deliver.
16: Currently, to meet the European standard, some utes require the use of AdBlue, an additive which reduces nitrogen oxide emissions from diesel vehicles. Mr Joe Hinkey says farmers need assurance that there will be cost-effective and fit-for-purpose utes available when the new standards are introduced in Australia.
17: Look, one of the most standard vehicles on a farm or in agriculture is the farm ute. And generally, if you compare it to, say, a Land Cruiser, which is a very standard vehicle across the nation, um, there is no comparative uh alternative to that there is no way that you can um retrofit those vehicles to make them um into those uh, emission standard um types of uh, um, outputs but more so, it's the actual cost that we're concerned of as well. We don't want this to be a cost burden on agriculture. We don't want to see people stranded out in the middle of the outback um, because they're not able to get ad blue or don't have a charging station. Um, and we have to realise that liquid fuel uh, is something that we need, especially in remote areas. And what we want to hear is how are we going to ensure that we've got all, access to all the resources that we need to make sure we can um, service these vehicles, make sure we can um, fuel these vehicles... And then let alone that these vehicles are equivalent to what we currently have and not imposing a greater cost than agriculture. But
16: southern New South Wales farmer Peter Holding from the lobby group Farmers for Climate Action says the changes don't go far enough.
3: Well, there's two things operating here. One is the emission standards and one is the efficiency standards. And in Europe, they have tighter of both. And they're already talking about bringing in e 7 standards, 07. And so what that means is that if you import cars into Europe and they don't meet those standards, you'll pay a penalty, a tax. And at the moment, it's about... You can import four reasonably efficient cars into Europe and you can avoid the tax by importing one zero-emission car, i.e. an EV. So all EVs are going to those markets with those standards. That's why we're not getting them here. Um, I was looking at... um, Utes that might be available and some are already in production but they won't be coming here for probably another four or five years because they won't have enough to counteract European and American demand and we're not putting any pressure on them to send them here so they'll just keep sending the old stock.
16: He argues the government also needs to set a clear direction for a transition to alternative fuels for farm machinery too.
3: Requiring a ute is one thing, but trying to transition headers and tractors is another. I'm not sure that international constructors or manufacturers have yet decided in which direction they're going to go. I mean, they might go EV for heavy vehicles, they might go hydrogen, they might go ammonia or biofuels or whatever else. Still, there's some clear planning and direction on this. It makes it very hard for farmers to know what they're going to do, because if you go out this year and buy a million million half dollar header, you want it to be still usable (laughs) in 10 or, so, or more years, so you know, if all of a sudden diesel isn't available or the rules change, there's going to be a problem. I think people in the, in rural Australia need to start agitating for a proper pathway to this, because if they don't, it is likely to get very messy by about 2030.
1: That was Peter Hol- Holding from Farmers for Climate Action speaking with Emily Doak. And we've got a text in. I'm not sure who it's from. I'd love it if you put your name on it, uh, 0467 842 722. But a picture of a, a selfie of a bloke in a, what looks like a ute and out monitoring the clearing of roadside vegetation with some cattle. So thank you for that. Always love a picture in here on the Country Hour. And that is, there's a lot of vegetation there. That's 0467 if you'd like to shoot me a message.
0: The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: A Euroa poultry auctioneer says buyers are paying top dollar for chickens at his weekly sales. It comes a fortnight before the lun- lun- Lunar New Year when poultry has pride of place on family dinner tables. Bram Metri holds auctions in Euroa and Melbourne and says the demand for live chooks has skyrocketed.
18: We uh, stopped oxygen in Melbourne thanks to COVID on the 20th of February, sorry, 24th of February 2020, and um, we reopened the oxygen two weeks ago. The second one is just uh, good. The demand for live birds in Melbourne has stripping supply. got Chinese New Year coming up shortly, and uh, you know, other people wanting birds to make more crystal food, and the price of chicken is dearer than lamb.
19: Can you run me through uh, how much chickens are actually uh, five, fetching five, at the three, moment? Yeah.
18: Okay, for example, they want mature roosters, which are six to eight-month-old mature, old-fashioned, what I call hard chicken or old-fashioned chooks. They weigh between two to three kilos. they make anywhere between $25 to $35 to $40 each. You can buy sheep for a lot less money.
19: Who are the vendors and who are coming to actually buy the chickens?
18: Right, your vendors come from all over Victoria. They're people like yourself and myself who breed chooks. They're show people. They're show breeders who have cold birds that they need to get rid of. Uh, people who want surplus are uh, old redheads. Eighty-one-year-old free-range hen. Your purchasers are just a typical mum and dad from uh, various ethnic backgrounds who want chicken like they had back overseas. For example, getting um, these people in Vietnam, they come with their birds of bright yellow eggs. And you get the meat, like birds with yellow eggs. The Burmese tend to like birds with black feathers, like the ostriches. That sort of thing. They want
19: what they have back home. So you do sell live poultry, but also eggs and equipment.
18: I saw live poultry, I saw incubators providing their test tagged, I saw took carry crates, that sort of stuff. Uh, at the rollers auction we do, we do a lot of equipment such as speeders, drinkers, carry crates. In Melbourne we just tend to do um, two kinds of auctions. There's a Sunday sale, which uh, people bring their roosters too, and there's a purebred sale which on the 11th of February, which will be all purebred females, for people who want purebred old-fashioned birds to lay eggs. There's, a, there's an auction in Melbourne every Saturday, there is six purebred sales in Melbourne, there are three purebred sales at Eurora. There's one at Wangaratta. I also call auction for Albury Poultry Club, which has two a year in uh, April and I think August or September.
19: So is the demand for, for live poultry really concentrated in, in the northeast as well as Melbourne?
18: Yes. Uh, the auction at Eurora, which is in northeast Victoria, buyers come from as far and sellers come from as far away as South Australia, Tasmania. The auction at Albury, I have sellers who come from as far away as South Australia to sell birds. Um, in Melbourne, we get them all over the place as well. Yaroa would be the biggest purebred-selling uh to sell in the state, and uh, we've sent birds to every state of Australia from that auction over the last 30 years, except for the Northern Territory.
19: With those really strong prices at the start of the year, what do you think is, is behind that?
18: People want old-fashioned hard chicken, and you can't get it. You just can't get it. The meat birds that you buy, and the, the chickens you buy in the supermarket are beautifully grown, but for what they do their traditional cooking, they're what they call soft chicken, and they need the harder chicken. There's two sales in Melbourne. There's deals in Melbourne and Sydney selling birds. People watch what, traditional old-fashioned birds. Of course, you can't um, grow. They don't take uh, 30 days to grow. They take six months to grow, and they just take time.
19: And so, Braham, how did how did you get into chicken auctioneering in the first place?
18: Okay. Well, my grandmother and grandfather had an auctioneer in Melbourne. i a third-generation old-fashioned general auctioneer. Today, your auctioneers are specialist. They do sheep, they do cows, they do cars or whatever. But our family had an auction in Genoa back in 1955. And my grandmother and my grandfather used to auction birds. Uh, They were both deceased. My late uncle also used to auction everything he deceased. I was um, auctioning general stuff, and my daughter passed away in 1990 in June. And I was asked to do an auction in July. I thought, well, why not? You know, I was at the lowest point of my life and the royal poll for a to do a sale and uh, I went and auction birds. Never had a ball, I've been here ever since. Even when I worked in Sydney for two of the biggest auction houses in Australasia, I used to go the weekend and do uh, bird auctions on the fringes of Sydney for the other uh, two auction companies do that. I breed, I show chooks, I judge chooks, it's just part of my hobby.
19: So why chooks Bram, of all other animals?
18: Oh, the characters in that, yeah. You know, people like Don Burke, who sold birds for, Dr Harry Kimple, who sold birds for, you meet people from all over the place, all different walks of life. You meet multi, multi-millionaires, You're average people. It's just something that um, you know, people, it's just the people you meet. They're just nice people and, and they've all got one thing in common. They're all there because they love birds. They're just, um, they're characters.
1: Celebrity, you are a poultry auctioneer by the sounds of it. Bram Metri speaking there with Faith Tabaloojian. Uh, On the text line 0467 842 722, we've got one in saying, not sure why we need Europe emissions standards for vehicles here. We are not in Europe. And normal traveller here would put you in different countries there. That's a good point. Thank you for your text message on 0467 842 722. I'd also love to hear from somebody if they've gone to a poultry auction. That sounds like a very interesting day out. And moving to a different breed now, there's an unlikely herd of cattle turning heads on one of the Western District's farms. Brahms that recently arrived from North Queensland. The breed is widespread in Northern Australia, but uncommon in Victoria, where the Angus breed dominates the cattle industry. It's, it's the realisation of a lifelong curiosity for grain grower and sheep producer Warren Blake that farms at Tolongack East. Uh, Angus Verley spoke with him about his brahm experiment.
15: Long story short, I've had an interest in him from when I was a bloody kid, really. Always like the brum and something different. Yeah, so that's sort of where it all started. Sort of been looking the last five years and, I don't know, came to the stage where they were droughted in Queensland. So that's where I found them. Just, yeah, tried to get them home. That was was probably the hardest part of it, trying to get them from northern Queensland back down into Victoria.
8: Talk me through what what that trip was like for them.
15: Uh, Long. Um, supposed to be loaded Tuesday morning. They had, I think it was 55 mm of rain early hours of Tuesday morning. They couldn't get a couldn't get two singles up the driveway to get them. Uh, road train double went in Thursday morning with no trouble at all. They had to go to Ralston through a compulsory dipping because of the tick area in northern Queensland. Uh, they passed clear and then I think they got off at Forbes or somewhere around there. For an eighteen-hour break before they
8: came to home, and I imagine with with what it had happened with the cattle job, and as you said, being being pretty dry there, you, you got got them for a pretty good price.
15: I got them for yeah, fairly cheap, five hundred bucks a head. So yeah, it cost me near on two hundred to get them home. But yeah, still, I made about a hundred bucks while they were on the truck. Actually, yeah, meat, meat went up. Yeah, while they were on the trip home. So it sort of, yeah, paid for half the freight. Yeah, I said sorghum at home two days, I think, after they landed. Uh, thought we were going into a drought situation down home. They were talking a hot, dry summer. As it turns out, we've got that much feed. It's not sunny. Um, so probably didn't need a sorghum crop. But anyway, they've got uh, 36 hectares of sorghum that they're slowly chewing down over the next few weeks.
8: And how have they settled in at your place?
15: They settled in really well. They sort of, I wasn't sure how, what to expect or how to expect, but they got off the truck and ran circles around the paddock like racehorses. I think they were probably happy to be off a truck after being on it for four days, but no, they settled down fairly quick. Pretty calm, yeah, cattle. They've been handled a fair bit up in Queensland, so they're more inquisitive than anything else. Yeah, you can sort of drive the ute right up to them and they come up and lick the bonnet or lick the bull bar on the front of the ute, so. They're not scared of anything. They're pretty pretty docile. Uh, moved them out the back and they yeah, they walked out there, no worries at all. Didn't have to round them up as such. Yeah, no, pretty pretty calm cattle for, for what they yeah, say they are. So I'm sort of probably happy that they are what they are.
8: And what's the plan, Warren? You're just going to fatten them up and move them on or you're going to get into breeding? What are you going to do?
15: My stock agents talking breeding. Uh, they're all heifers, all about oh, probably nine months old now. So still or well, nine ten months old. We've still got about six months before we can breed with them. But they'll be yeah sort of fattened up over the next six months. Try and get them up to a a mating weight. Yeah, next exercise we're trying to find bulls. I've got one at home through an earlier uh, purchase that I made through a mate at Winchelsea.
8: And I'm not sure if they're they're in a roadside paddock, Warren, but I I'd assume they're turning a few heads when people see Brahmins in one of the one in a in a very unlikely place to expect them.
15: Oh, I've had a lot of comments from around the place and a lot of friends have messaged me of on their way past to go fishing at Rocklands. Yeah, sort of what the <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was Tallandak East farmer Warren Blake there who recently brought a truckload of Brahmins out of Queensland to pursue a longline interest in the breed. Uh, $70. $70, <laughs> Let's head to the markets now. off to Wagga with Leanne Dax for the uh, land market.
13: Good afternoon. The Wagga lamb sale showed strong demand despite the impending short trading week ahead due to the Australia Day holiday tomorrow. Agents offered a smaller offering of 28,750 lambs and 15,200 sheep. Although all the usual processes were present at the sale, not all major companies were in operation. Trade lambs are available in limited numbers and prices held steady, ranging from 130 to 170 with an average of 693 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Lambs weighing 22 to 24 fetched from 155 to 168. There was a robust demand for heavy lambs from various buyers, although they were cautious about exceeding 700 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Lambs between 26 to 30 were firm and they they Ranged from 170 to 216, while those over 30 kilos fetched 215 to 258. Store buyers were not as active, and lambs returning to the paddock sold for prices ranging from $71 to 148. Hoggett saw intense bidding, with the better finished ones selling between 100 and 195. With the sheep sale yet to commence, some Leon Ducks for MLA.
1: Thanks, Leanne. And in some breaking news, the Prime Minister has made an announcement about a supermarket inquiry at the National Press Club. Here he is now.
13: And today
3: I announce that the Treasurer will be directing the ACCC to conduct a 12-month price inquiry into the supermarket industry. The ACCC has significant powers and it is the best and most effective body to investigate supermarket prices, to look at how things like Online shopping, loyalty programs and changes in technology are impacting competition in the industry. And to examine the difference between the price paid at the farm gate and the prices that people are paying at the checkout. For me it's this simple. When farmers are selling their product for less, supermarkets should be charging Australians at the checkout less.
1: That's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese They're speaking at the National Press Club. We will bring you the latest on that tomorrow on the Rural Report and the Country Hour. Thank you very much for joining me today on the Country Hour. We've got a few texts that I didn't get to. I'm sorry, we'll read those out tomorrow. But for now, it is one o'clock news time. <music>